Man, it is an exciting day just to see everybody here and that each week this church is just getting more and more packed. Like, it's just awesome. Like, God, God is doing something. And it, and it makes me nervous, too. Because this, um, this message that God has given and put on, on my heart for all of us is not an easy message. But uh, I've been struggling with him. Like, God, are you sure this is a message that you want us to, to go through? And he said, yeah, he hasn't changed his mind in any way, and so we're, we're going to go into it. But thankfully, we're going to start with a little bit of just a little tongue-in-cheek here, because we're talking about suffering, and that's not, that's not the easiest thing to talk about. And uh, God kind of put it on my heart. He's like, hey, uh, you just kind of went through a little bit of suffering just last week, and it's one that we can all relate to here, I believe. I had to go to the dentist. Yeah, right? We all know what I'm talking about right there. I've only met one person, and they, they go to High Point, who said, I love going to the dentist. I'm like, you are absolutely crazy. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the drills and the sounds, because some of you are probably already like digging your nails into your thighs just, just thinking about it. But the interesting thing about uh, the dentist is, it just kind of impressed on me, like, okay, there is a purpose to this. When we go to the dentist, we realize that we're going there for a reason. We know that there's something that is wrong in our teeth, in our mouth in some way. And so we, we go there because we know that at the end, even though it was very difficult, we were sitting in that chair, that uncomfortable chair with that light blaring down on you. It's, they sometimes like make you so flat that even like you get tilted a little bit. And, but at the end, you look back and you're like, aha, it was worth it. It was worth it for me because we just had Halloween a few weeks ago, and now my teeth are good to go, and my wife probably doesn't like this, but I can eat all the Halloween candy I want again. I don't have the sensitivity like I used to have, and so, so it was good. So going to, this, going to the dentist, it makes sense. We understand why we should go to the dentist, but it is the same, and it, in some ways, it's the same with suffering. And that's what we want to try and do today. We want to try and make sense out of suffering. Because we understand that, you know, it's, it's painful. Suffering is painful. Suffering is hard. But is there a purpose to it? Is there a reason that we are going through the suffering? And are we able, when we have gone through it, we get to the end and we can look back and say, okay, God, I can now see what you were doing. Now, this has been Job's battle. We've been in the book of Job. If you're here with us for the first time just visiting, we're going through the book of Job, and we've, we've uh, heard about how Job has, uh, you know, he's just lost everything. God has, uh, has basically put him to the test, and he's lost his family, he's lost his health, he's lost his business, and he's had three friends come to visit him, and uh, basically just kind of trying to console him, but not doing a very good job of it. And then Job is just kind of questioning, like, why is this happening? I have not done anything wrong. And so he's, he's just basically, he's, he's crying out to God in the same way that we would when we suffer, saying, why? That's really the only question. We don't need to make any longer. Why? Why am I suffering? There is not a single person in this room who has not asked that question, maybe multiple times. Maybe you're even asking that question right now. Why am I suffering? And then we cry out to God, whether you believe in God or whether you don't, sometimes we all cry out to God. We're like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this to me? And what is the answer that we often get? Silence. We don't hear anything. And it makes us question more. Or 
sometimes we get that very well-intentioned person who comes and has the perfect answer. They've studied suffering, they've taken psychology classes, they've taken theology classes, and they can define exactly why you are suffering. But is that really what we want to hear? It doesn't help us whatsoever. But they come and they're well-intentioned. And this is exactly what is happening with Job. See, even though God is working, he is still silent at the moment. Now, we're not going to hear from God today. We will hear from God next week when, in the final chapters of the story, God comes and gives his response to Job and his friends. But we are going to meet that well-intentioned friend, and his name is Elihu. And like, like his friends, Elihu has some good things to say. Elihu has some incorrect things to say. But he's also kind of a jerk, to be honest. So it's, it's just amazing to see, like, he's, he's talking about suffering, and he's kind of revealing that, okay, the friends that came, they were basically saying, Job, you must have sinned. You're not admitting that you've sinned, but you must have sinned because God gives us suffering because he punishes us with, he punishes our sin and suffering as a result of that. And Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. And so Elihu's come on the scene, he's like, hold on a second. Maybe that's not what it's all about. Maybe suffering has to do with what's to come than what is happening in the moment. So let's go ahead and meet Elihu. And what we're going to do is uh, we're going we're to go open to our Bibles. Have your Bible. We're going to go start at Job chapter 32. You can check out, as Kevin likes to say, go to your glossary and you can look it up there. If you get to the book of Psalms, it's the biggest book of the Bible. Find Psalms and then just turn back to the left because Job is right before Psalms. We're going to start in chapter 32. We're actually going to go real fast through these verses because what's going to happen here is we're just going to kind of summarize Job's or Elihu's speech. And we're going to use that as a backdrop to get into a story that of something that Jesus actually did. And then we're going to get even more personal than that. But what we're also going to do here is we're going to be reading a different version today. Just when we're in the book of Job, I'm going to be using what's called the Message Bible. If you ever read the Message Bible before, it is a paraphrased version. Now, I'm not up here to say you should go and get that as your study Bible because it can kind of get a little off. But when you're in the Old Testament, particularly when you're in a Hebrew poetry book, which is what Job is, the message can really help because it kind of takes all those weird sayings and phrases that don't make sense today and puts it into our common language. So that's what we're going to be looking at here. So let's meet Job, or sorry, let's meet Elihu. He's a feisty young guy. The other friends, they were the older friends, and he waited his turn because he's trying to be respectful. And then here's what he says as he introduces himself and kind of lays out why he is speaking. So I'm starting around verse 10. He says this, so I've decided to speak up. Listen well. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I hung on your words while you spoke. He's talking to the three other friends that had spoken before him. Listen carefully to your arguments while you searched for the right words. I was all ears. And now what have you proved? Nothing. Nothing you say has even touched Job. And don't excuse yourselves by saying, we've done our best. Now it's up to God to talk sense into him. Job has yet to contend with me. You getting an idea of who this guy is? And rest assured, I won't be using your arguments. Do you three have nothing else to say? Of course you don't. You're total frauds. Get a load of this guy. He's here. We, we got to realize something. Him and his friends have come to console Job. 
Job has lost everything. He is suffering and in misery. And, and Kevin said it well last week. He said there's power in silence when they came and sat with him for days. But then they opened their mouths. And he's arrogant. So I just want to chase this rabbit trail real fast here. Because this is an important point. How we say something is just as important as what we say. We can have all the truth in the world. But if we come across like that... How is that possibly going to help somebody who is in the deepest pit of their life? If you're going out and sharing the gospel, which is the love of Jesus Christ, but you're coming across like this, who wants to listen to that? How we say something is just as important as what we say. So I just want to leave that there, and then we're going to continue on. So I want to continue summarizing the chapters here. We get to chapters 34 and 35, and here Elihu is actually, he's contesting Job's position on who he thinks of himself and who God is. And so he says here in uh, chapter 34, verses 5 through 9, or I'm just going to read a couple of them here. He says, we've all heard Job say, I'm in the right, but God won't give me a fair trial. When I defend myself, I'm called a liar to my face. I've done nothing wrong, and I get punished anyway. Now, part of this is Elihu doesn't understand his own friend Job. Job has said these words, but he's saying, he's like, I don't get it. He's not trying to say, I really literally haven't done anything wrong. He's like, but in this case, I can't understand why this is happening to me. Because if God only allows us to suffer when we've done wrong, where is my wrong? And Elihu's jumping on him saying, you must have done something wrong. You can't be defending yourself saying that you're perfect. That's not what uh, uh, Job is trying to say here. But then he goes on to start to talk about who God is. And Elihu gets a couple things right, but one thing very wrong here. So down in verse 10, he says this, it's impossible for God to do anything evil. That is correct. No way can the mighty one do wrong. Absolutely. He makes us pay for exactly what we've done. No more, no less. That is wrong. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen the short of the glory of God. Yet if we were called by God to pay for what we have done, we would never have enough, we could never do enough to pay back God because he is a perfect, holy, holy, holy God. And if we have sinned even just once, by definition, we are imperfect. And imperfection cannot live in the presence of perfection. And so instead of us paying it was the only one who was truly innocent, Jesus Christ, who made that payment when he died on the cross. So I understand Elihu didn't know Jesus. They were years and years before Jesus. But this is not true, and I'm so thankful that that's not true. God has allowed Jesus Christ to take the suffering of our sins for us. We need to be willing to accept that grace. And it is a beautiful, beautiful grace right there. The last chapters in Job's speech are chapters 36 and 37. And I'm not going to read these here. I'm going to challenge us with something of those in the end. But just to kind of give you an idea of what 36 and 37 are like, this is Elihu giving an incredible, beautiful speech about the power of God. It is just awesome imagery there. But this is important. The power of God, when we are trying to understand if, if there is a reason to suffering, the power of God is extremely important here. So I propose this to us, a little philosophical statement. If suffering has no purpose, if suffering is just random, then God cannot be all-powerful. And if he is not all-powerful, 
And we are without hope. The Apostle Paul agrees with this. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 16. He says, For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. His point is this. If Jesus has not been raised from the grave, then death has not been beaten. And if death has not been beaten, then that means that God is not all powerful because God is not as powerful as death. And we know we've got the, we've got the old uh, American proverb that there are two things that we are all facing in this life, death and taxes, right? So death is one of those things that no one can escape from. And if God has not beaten death, then what's the purpose of us even being here? That's what Paul is saying. He's like, why should we even be here following Jesus? We might as well just do whatever we want and get the best that we can out of this life now, because once we die, that is it. Because God is not all-powerful and life must be hopeless. But he goes on in verse 20 and just very simply says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is a true statement. This is not, when we look at the Bible, this was not a parable. This was not a proverb. This was not a fairy tale when Jesus rose from the grave. This is, I'm going to say it this way, this is fact. This is history. He really did raise from the grave. And if he did raise from the grave, then that means that God is all powerful because he beat the one thing that we all have to face and suffer with. And because he is all powerful and has beaten death, there is hope. Death is the result of sin and suffering is an ugly side effect in sin. And if death has been defeated, then all of those things have also been defeated. We can have hope. I believe that 100%. However, I I get that, that this does not, even though we can say, okay, Jesus raised from the grave, that's great, but I'm still suffering right now. I'm still hurting. I'm still in pain. This has not given us proper understanding of why we are suffering. And despite everything that Elihu and his friends have said, Job is still sitting in his misery. Job still has boils all over his skin. Job's Children, all are still dead. His house is gone. His livelihood is gone. And he still has a wife that is wishing that he would just die. And so Job is still asking, why is this happening to me? And so are we. We want to know why Job is suffering. We want to know why we're suffering. And I'm sure that there are some of us here that feel exactly like Job feels even right now. There are some of you here who've come in, you've got a smile on your face and you're putting, you're putting it out there. You're putting out that good vibe, but deep down inside, you are just dying like Job is dying. You want to curse God. Maybe you even have cursed God. And I'm not saying that you should, but I'm saying I get it. Or maybe you're even like, like Job. Job was taking a, a broken piece of pottery and he's, and he's cutting down, scraping off the boils And maybe you've been there cutting yourself, but you're trying to get at a scar that is much, much deeper. And I just want to say this. Hold on. I get it. I've been there. Kevin, I'm sure, would tell you that he's been there. He doesn't walk on water, even though he's awesome. 
The worship team, they get it. The person to your left, the person to your right, they get it. We have all been in the darkness. Just because you're facing what you're facing doesn't mean you're the only one who has ever gone through that. And I don't say that to say, oh, you know, you, you don't understand yourself. Well, I'm just saying, hey, you're not alone. You are not the only one who has gone through the darkness. As much as I'm saying I get it, who cares? But Jesus has gone through the darkness too. In fact, in John 1, 5, it says, the light came into the world, which was Jesus, and the darkness could not overcome it. There is a fight between the light and the dark, and Jesus has victory there. But in terms of understanding us, we also know this about Jesus. In Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14, we read this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Plain and simple, Jesus lived life like we lived. He gets it. Where you have been, he has been there too. I mean, my goodness, some of the, the, just go to the cross, first of all, he's up there with the weight of the sin of the entire world, past, present, and future, all on his shoulders. He was in perfect communion with God the Father, a place of perfection where there is no sin, and then in a moment, he is now bearing that weight. That is some serious suffering right there. But then we can take it down to our own level. His best friend betrayed him. He had another friend who betrayed him, and he died as a result of it. He lost his cousin who was beheaded. He experienced these things as well. He knows you. He gets you. Your suffering is not wasted on God. So that's why I'm able to say, hold on. Just hold on. Maybe even just for the rest of this message, hold on. So hopefully God can speak into your life and that suffering that you're going through will make sense. Now, how do I know that our all-powerful God does have a purpose for suffering? How can I stand up here and say, okay, you're going through it, but there's something, there's a reason for this. I'm not trying to say that that makes it any easier. I'm just trying to say there is something to come. I said we were summarizing these chapters, and some of you are probably saying, hold on, didn't he skip a chapter? You're right. Let's go back to Job chapter 33. See, Elihu states that Job is wrong in thinking that God is simply punishing Job for no reason. And then he goes on to give us some wonderful imagery, giving a few examples of how God might use suffering for what's to come. And so in here, Job 33, uh, I'm going to read this one starting at verse 15. He says this, in a dream, for instance, a vision at night when men and women are deep in sleep, fast asleep in their beds, God opens their ears and impresses them with warnings to turn them back from something bad they're planning, from some reckless choice and keep them from an early grave, from the river of no return. What is he saying, plain and simple? He's saying that Sometimes we suffer because of nightmares and bad dreams, and God might give you that nightmare because he is actually trying to warn you. Maybe you're just thinking of doing something that's just really dumb, and God's trying to pull you back from that. And so he just sends you that dream saying, warning, warning, don't do this. And you wake up in a cold sweat, and you're like, all right, I think I got to rethink my priorities a little bit. Well, then he goes on in um, verse 19. I'm not going to read all of these because it gets long. He says, or God might get their attention through pain by throwing them on a a bed of suffering. Elihu is referring to sickness here. That maybe, just maybe, 
God is allowing someone to be sick. Maybe you've heard this. I've heard this. Someone who has been just battling with sickness, maybe even on their deathbed. And then they were healed. They got better. And what do they say? Like, I got a new lease on life. I realized that I was not living my life the way that I should be living it. And this sickness has helped me to realize that I want to live my life better. And so there was suffering in that sickness and it was hard, but then they're able to move forward and say, I want to live and I want to live well. Down here in verse 26, he says, or you may fall on your knees and pray to God's delight. You'll see God smile and celebrate finding yourself set right with God. And if you read through all those verses, you realize that Elihu is saying, sometimes God, he'll allow the suffering of guilt to be in our lives. And this is the idea that yes, we have sinned. And that weight of sin drives us to Jesus where we are able to repent. And then we feel his grace and his love come upon us as he does forgive us. And we're able to turn from sins and wicked ways and God comes and hears us and heals us. So these are just a few here, a few different ideas of just showing that yes, there can be a reason for suffering. It might not make suffering any easier. It's just like sitting in that dentist chair. That drill hurts. That Novocaine is awkward. But afterwards, you're able to look back and say, aha, I see what God is doing. Or we can say it this way. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, one of my favorite set of verses here. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. Trials produce perseverance. Afflictions, suffering produce perseverance. We learn how to endure through these things. We learn how to go through this and then it changes us. It's the idea here is we become more like Jesus. That's called the process of sanctification right there. And as we become more like him, he is strengthening us. He is filling us with who he is. And then we start to have hope. We might still be going through the pain in the night, but we're able to say there is joy in the morning because Jesus is in me. I can endure with him by my side. I wish though that Job did have a chance to meet Jesus because all this, and you might still be saying this, like that all sounds fine and good, but those are just words on a piece of paper. It doesn't doesn't help me whatsoever. It still hurts. And Job right now where we're at in his story, he still hurts, but I, I wish that he had a moment to just see Jesus and see how he handles suffering, how he even allows suffering. And we see this in John 11, which is the story of Lazarus. We're just going to summarize the story, but pull, pull out a few key points here. So Jesus is friends with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And he's in a different town. They're in the town of Bethany. And Lazarus gets sick. He gets so sick that his sisters send a messenger to Jesus saying, Lazarus is sick. Will you come and heal him? And Jesus being the great friend of Lazarus, he does nothing. He stays where he is. For days, he stays where he is. Until eventually, he says, all right, let's go. Because Lazarus is asleep, let's go and wake him up. And the disciples are like, hey, if he's asleep, isn't that a good thing? He's like, you morons. He's not asleep. He's dead. But he actually says it this way. Lazarus is dead and I'm glad. Wait, 
You're glad? Jesus, you have a few screws loose here? You're glad that he's dead? That doesn't make any sense. So he says it here in uh, John eleven fourteen. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Jesus, you're up to something here, aren't you? Did you catch that? I'm glad for you. He's not glad that Lazarus is dead. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. There looks like there's a purpose. Jesus has a plan for even allowing Lazarus to die. I know that sounds gruesome, but we have to remember, if death is overcome, then God can work in this. So Jesus, he goes to Bethany with his disciples, and he first meets Martha. And Martha comes to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I believe that he will raise, you can raise him back to life. He says this, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus goes on and says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying, dead people can come back to life. Now, if somebody came to us and was like, hey, I can raise the dead. We'd be like, no, dead people stay dead, right? Prove it. You really want to say dead people come back to life? Then you need to prove it to me. And right now, these are just words. So Jesus moves on and he meets Mary. Now, Mary's a little bit different than Martha. Mary grabs the feet of Jesus and she's crying and says that she's distraught. And she says, Lord, if you were here, Lazarus would not have died. And that's all she says. There's no hope. And I think that Mary is a little bit more like us. We are crying out to Jesus and we are basically saying, Lord, you didn't show up when I asked you to. Where were you? I don't care if you have a plan or not. Where were you? Where were you when we were in the hospital praying and you were silent? Where were you at the accident? Where were you when he walked out? Where were you when she was shooting up? Where were you when he was cutting himself? That's how we all feel like, where were you, God? And he even responds after this with Mary. And it says that he was troubled in his spirit and he cries because he sees it. He knows he has a plan, but they don't know. We don't know what that plan is. And it hurts him down to the core as well. He's like, I know what I'm going to do, but I also know that this hurts you while I'm doing it. But trust me, this is for your good. And he goes to the tomb. He says, roll away the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes walking out. And if the dead man, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, if the dead man can walk out, then God is all-powerful. There is hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And his purpose for Lazarus dying was to show that he can bring the dead back to life. And if he can do that, if he can make sense out of that kind of suffering, I believe that he can make sense out of yours too. Suffering does have a purpose. I get it though. It's still a story. Even though I said it's history, it's still a story. 
We don't have stories like Lazarus. We've prayed for loved ones and they have still died. Well, let me tell you this. Lazarus, he still died eventually. Even though he was brought back to life, he did die. I don't know how he died. Maybe just good old age. But because death has been defeated, he is now at the right hand of the father. But I still believe that our own personal stories, they do have purpose. There is purpose in suffering. Lazarus' story made a larger point so that all would be able to believe that Jesus truly is who he is. But what about our own stories? To understand this, we're going to make this even more personal. And so I'm going to ask someone very important important to me to join me on stage. I'm going to ask my wife, Araceli, to, to come up. Hi, hon. Hello. Good morning. You're good. You're on. You ready? Yeah. Okay. All right. So Araceli has a story that she wants to share with us. And um, just put your seatbelts on. Let's start off with a little bit of a funny question to get this started, but it has a point to it. So up until the day we got married, hon, you actually shared a bed with someone else. Who was it? Yeah, uh, since I was a child, I shared a bed with my sister, my younger sister. Her mm-hmm. name is Ingrid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, I remember this well. You two were, were very tight. So tell us a little bit about your sister and uh, like who she was and your amazing relationship with her. Um, she was a very cheerful uh, young lady and a woman. She trusted the Lord in, in ways that I cannot even describe. Her faith was just encouraging she would just light up a whole room her spirit would be so bright and 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 so uh uh, she was funny and silly but at the same time she just loved so well and and just encouraged everyone around her even in hard circumstances so around the time i i moved to guatemala for for the first time uh something happened to her what was it uh after she graduated from high school she got sick with the autoimmune disorder that's called purpura thrombocytopenica, which is uh, the your body start attacking your own uh, body, and you know it deteriorates over the time. Mm-hmm. So she was sick for a number of years, and you know we we lived with it, we worked with it, but it was it was a tough time. And the the doctors were saying like she should be getting better, right? Yeah, uh, they gave us the option to remove her spleen, which was considered the the cause of her uh, immune disorder or she could go for the lung treatment and get better eventually. So I think we were married just maybe just two years, but I remember um, we're back in New Jersey, and I remember this day pretty well. It was the first day that I was going to be leading the youth group at um, Come Alive Church, and we're literally about to get the message started, and you called me. What happened? On the day, I had gotten a call from my homeland, from my brother, saying that I needed to return home because our younger sister was very ill and she was at the hospital. And I didn't know the extension of that, but he said that uh, she had fell into a coma, got an aneurysm, and I was just very speechless. Yeah. So we, um, we got you a ticket as quickly as possible, but you weren't able to get there in time, were you? No. It, it took a long day to arrive there, and when I got there, I was holding in the hope to really hug her and speak to her, but they were already at the funeral, and I didn't get the chance to really say bye to her and tell her to love her. You're doing good, hon. 
So how, was, how did you react through all of this? Uh, it was really hard for me. Uh, I really got mad at God. I got really, really upset. I felt like he wasn't there for me. I needed his comfort. I needed him to reply to my prayers. I trusted him with everything I got. And I just felt like he abandoned me and abandoned my sister. There was only the two of us who were believers in the family. My brother, my mom, and my dad did not uh, know about Jesus by that time. So I got mad at God, and, and I even said to him, and I said, God, you have messed up everything. If there was a little bit of chance of a hope, everything has died right now. A part of me have, have been dead, and I was just very hurting by that, that, that he did not show up and that I did not see him through the hard season. So we're back in the United States now. You, you've arrived. You were there for about a month or so, I think. And uh, I remember you were saying no Christmas, no birthdays. You were, it, was, it was a tough time. But can you tell us what happened not too long after you returned, um, what God had done with you and your family as a result of your sister's death? After months, um, I got a call from home. It was my mom on the phone. And, uh, but she was joyful. She was happy. I thought she would be upset and crying and telling me, why do you still continue to trust in God? Why do you continue to, to serve Jesus that did not show up and you know, heal your sister. But instead, she told me uh, how excited she was because she had gone to church with my brother and my dad. And on that day, they had received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Yeah. And let's just go back to the beginning. Your sister, when she first became a Christian, there was a, something like a, a dream or something, right, that had happened. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, she, she was really, like, uh, excited about serving the Lord. And um, during her funeral, a uh, pastor shared with us that she had come uh, on a service one day and saw her uh, really at the altar and, and asked her if she could share what, what, what she was crying and what she was praying. And uh, they have a conversation about this. And uh, she shared that she was so heartbroken that my mom, my brother, and my and my dad didn't know who Jesus was, and that he wanted them to know uh, who Jesus is. And so she came to the Lord and said, God, would you take my life so you can actually do whatever it needs to be done so they can have salvation, so they can know that you are a true living God. Yeah. Awesome story. Thank you, hon. Thank you. You're done. <laughs> you survived. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You're good. Behind us back up over there. Yeah. I got to meet Ingrid. I knew her for a couple of years, and she really was awesome. It was just a delight to be around her. And we had often talked with Araceli's family, just pleading with them, like, look, Ingrid, this sickness doesn't make sense. She should be getting better. And the doctors don't know why she's not getting better. And pastors had come and said, there's something spiritual going on here. And we were pleading with them, like, God wants you to respond to him. And her parents were, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. We're, we're Mayan. We have Mayan customs. And, and you know, that's, that's, who, that's who we are. And, and, but it was just, just like that. Ingrid died. 
And all of a sudden, it just made sense, and they gave their lives to Jesus. And I can't, I don't want to live by what ifs, but it just seems like that was God's plan. I don't know if they're following Jesus if this doesn't happen. But the beauty of it is that even though we miss Ingrid tremendously, we will be reunited again because death has been defeated. And that is why I'm confident to say there is a purpose in that suffering because what God is doing is far greater than we can possibly comprehend. I'm not saying that, we, that it's wrong to, not, to, to ask him, okay, why am I going through this? But when there's silence and when the answer is not what you want, trust him. He's doing something far greater than that. Our slave sister was not brought back to life like Lazarus was, but she was restored to being a woman of faith and her family was restored as well. As we close, I want to give us a couple of action steps here. First action step I want to I give us, um, I know we didn't spend a lot of time in Job and that was, was the message that God gave me, but I want to I encourage you to go back to Job 36 and 37. And if you have a, a Bible app, if you have a phone, get the Bible app and look it up in the message version and then go outside and read Job 36 and 37 out loud and just find yourself in awe of his power by seeing Elihu's words as he talks about Job's power through the, the beauty of the creation that testifies of who he is. It will rock your socks off. Secondly, this last part here, and if uh, any of our youth are here, they'll know where I'm going with this, is it was actually our message a, a couple weeks ago. But um, John eleven forty four says this. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him, and let him go. Church, when it especially comes to suffering, we've got to be willing to get dirty. Jesus told the people around saying, see all those grave clothes, those stinking smelling cloths that have been touching a dead and decaying body. You go and take them off. You go and get involved in the difficulty of someone else's life. I don't mean to pry, I don't mean to gossip, but I mean to pray with someone, to cry with someone. And I encourage us to do that even now because there are some people here, maybe even all of us, who we might want to be resisting this message because we are suffering inside. But someone to turn to them and just say, hey, hold on. I got you. Do that. There's someone here who they need a tissue. And what they really need is you to be that tissue. I don't mean to give them a box of tissues, but I mean to give them you, to hold them, and to hug them, and to cry with them. Because if someone is suffering in the body, then we all suffer because we are the body of Christ with Jesus as our head. So I encourage us today, let's let that be part of our worship. Lean into that. Hold each other as you worship. Let's not be Elihu. He missed this. Let's be Jesus. And let's worship.